Welcome to Journals of Self-Discovery. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's edition of Journals of Spiritual Discovery. I just want to note that episode 10, the interview with Mike Schneider, I changed the title on that episode. It's now called Wisdom from Down Home with the Hillbilly Sutra. It's definitely a classic, and if you haven't heard Mike, do listen to that one. I really recommend it. As for this month, I've got Jan Frazier, and I really enjoy the interview with Jan. Although she's spoken at several TAP Foundation meetings, I've never had the opportunity to hear her speak. And uh, it was great just to just hear about her background, to hear uh, some of the common experiences that we've had, although we express them in different language, and just to get uh, some of her insights into common hang-ups that seekers have on the path. Do make sure that you check out the show notes. If you're not familiar with those, go to spiritualteachers.org forward slash podcast, and you'll see that for every episode, uh, there's actually a page devoted to it, and it'll have some notes from the show, as well as links to things, uh, for example, like Jan's books, and uh, she mentions a book by Sam Harris in the interview. I have a link to that as well. So that's all I have for this month. Uh, I hope you enjoy the episode, and I will speak with you again next month. Well, first thing, Jan, I just wanted to thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to do this with me. I really appreciate it. Great. Uh, You know, I generally like to start uh, with just a little bit of a person's background, um, just in case listeners aren't familiar uh, with your story, I know some people that don't want to talk about the story. They feel like it doesn't matter at all, um, and you know we can certainly abbreviate it if you want to. Um, but one of the things I'm always curious about with people is, is for example, in my life, I I really didn't get interested in the spiritual questions until my early twenties, and I just lived a a pretty normal, if you will, uh, teenage years and before that. And so I'm always curious if if there's a point of time that you can identify that you you first had a, a spiritual inkling or spiritual questions come up for you. Yeah, it's something that looks different to me over time as, as time has gone on and, and I look back and reconsider that very kind of question. Um, I, mm-hmm. I was raised Catholic, and it meant a lot to me when I was a kid. And so I would say I was aware as a child uh, of feeling a sensitivity to something bigger or an awareness that there was something... Uh, actually, it felt physically large, or you could say spatially large, um, beyond any kind of immediacy. And of course I couldn't have given words to that when I was a child. But there was something about the, the Catholic practice, the, the, the Latin, which it was then, um, the sacraments, the incense, the majesty of it, and the, the symbolism that was everywhere, that did seem to register in the kid that I was. 
um, later when I began to more consciously become interested in what we call the spiritual life. Uh, and at that point, I guess I was, um, oh, in my mid to late 30s, I had stopped being a practicing Catholic long before, like maybe when I was in my mm-hmm. late teens. Uh, I'd always had the sense that there, that there was a God, let's say, but I didn't have any kind of practice or path or pursuit um, until I was approaching 40, I guess, maybe in my 30s. And, um, and there I think what precipitated what I could say was a kind of a beginning was uh, I, I had, I'd had a, a medical situation that caused me to feel an enormous amount of fear on repeating occasions. And I could feel what a toll it was taking on me. Uh, around that same time, I came upon a spiritual teacher, a guru, um, through a friend, and uh, was, it would have been the last thing I ever would have imagined being drawn to, the very last. Mm. Uh, but in spite, of, in spite of whatever my natural tendencies might have been, I was drawn there, and I, and I think I realized even then that it, it had something to do with wanting to address the crippling fear and some sense that maybe I didn't have to be subject to all of that. But, uh, but I, you know, again, I couldn't have articulated this at the time. And so um, I ended up practicing that spiritual tradition, that practice, uh, for some years. And um, I guess you could say at that point it, it sure looked like I was on a path. But that said, you know, I never, I never said in so many words to myself, awakening would be the desired outcome of this, or even a longed-for outcome, frankly, because I didn't think it was possible. And I think that's partly because I, I so revered and even, you might say, worshipped my teacher and what I imagined to be her so-called state, that I thought it was, I thought what she was experiencing was was unique and particular to her and people like her, but that it didn't happen to ordinary people. Mm-hmm. And so when things dramatically changed on my interior, uh, I was taken quite by surprise. And in fact, I didn't even understand what had happened for the better part of a year. I didn't relate it to what I had sensed in my teacher uh, it's kind of strange to me now, but because pe- this is so much in the culture now, at least in a certain part of the Western culture, and but I hadn't read books uh, except for my teacher's books. Um, so you know, I was a real innocent <laughs> in a way, and I and I mm-hmm. actually enormously appreciate that now because I discovered what it felt like to be free of the mind and free of fear and all the rest of it really from the inside, very much experientially. And I didn't have any language for it. I didn't have any framework. I hadn't been subject to what so many people that, I'm, that I sit with now seem to be subject to, which is being what I would consider limited by a set of ideas and a, a desperate yeah. desire to become free of pain. And, 
Um, so I, I'm, I feel fortunate that it wasn't like that for me. Mm-hmm. Did you, in regards to your teacher at that time, uh, the the feeling that that awakening wasn't something that you could accomplish, that it was for these rare individuals, was that something that was in the teachings or just in your mind? It was in my mind. Yeah. In fact, uh, my teacher said many, many times, this is... This that you sense in me is everyone's nature. <laughs> so it's mm. not like she wasn't trying to, mm-hmm. you know, but it, it really was very much in my, my mind's understanding of what it was like to be both, you could say, enlightened and in a human body. And I, I just, I had, uh, I had an idea about it that didn't line up with reality. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I had something similar for a period of time with a very dynamic teacher, um, Richard Rose, who you probably know the name, who just seemed so, he was so intense and so determined. And I thought, oh, this is, this is some sort of Olympian. I can never be like this guy. And uh, that's despite him saying that, of course you can you know, of course you could do this. <laughs> yeah. Similar thing. Just in my head, I had this this barrier that I couldn't do this. And I th- did you at some point? Uh, did that soften that impression that you had? Uh, it it did eventually, and I think what helped me is meeting other teachers um, you know he was he was my primary teacher for a long time and I while I read books from other traditions I, I still didn't get that sense of you know the ordinary person who comes upon this uh, they still seemed like you know, heroes almost these were heroic people who achieved awakening yeah yeah I think that's really common to think, and, and in fact, maybe that's why when some of these teachers who probably really do embody real wisdom and truth turn out to also be human and flawed, that's, that can be devastating to people. And uh, it speaks more of, not, not of the teachers uh, being a fake or something necessarily, but to me it speaks more of, as what happened to me, the person, the so-called seekers, mindset or orientation to what they observe. And in fact, my wanting to avoid this whole thing, when I've been in the presence of people who've invited me to give a talk or sit with them or something, my inclination has been to, initially it was, to downplay, uh, to do whatever I might do to, uh, to quiet or to subdue in some way the, you might say, the energy that might cause the other person to think, oh no, she's really different or better, or you know, mm. this isn't something that I could experience. And I, I eventually realized that maybe that wasn't such a good thing to be doing that, but it's a mm-hmm. trade-off, I think. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. Now, were you, uh, when you were with your teacher, who, we're speaking of Guru Mai, correct? Yes. Uh, Were you, you you didn't have the idea of of awakening necessarily as something that you were after, but you, you were trying to reduce fear or be more at ease in life? Was that more what you were aiming for? Yeah. I wanted to suffer less. Mm-hmm. I really did have the sense, and I, part of what I so appreciated about what I learned from her is, is that it, it, uh, it invited me to look inside to see what I was doing with reality as it came along that caused me to suffer. So that fundamental thing was it really did bear fruit, uh, and I could feel the suffering easing. <clears throat> Excuse me, and it—it's um, just that I, well, I wanted to behave better. Mm. I was a mother of young children at the time, and I wanted to function. I wanted to be a better mother. I didn't yeah. want to lose my temper with them. So. For me, it all had to do with trying to correct my interior by noticing uh, the extent to which I I brought about my own angst, and then that would result in, uh, uh, you know, being more fully present and patient with my children, but also not not reacting so painfully when one of these scary experiences happened or something to do with death or the threat of death mm-hmm so I'm I'm guessing that you you made progress with that over time or else you wouldn't have have kept kept going with those teachings um, is it yeah. I guess I'm trying to I'm, I'm approaching what was the difference between what you stumbled upon or happened to you in terms of fear falling away and what you had done up to that point. Yeah. The, the more I look at that and ask myself that question, the, the greater the mystery <laughs> mm-hmm. becomes, the, the more I see that I really can't know. But uh, my, sense, my sense is that somewhere in me, and I think this happens with most of us, uh, very deep, uh, very deep change was occurring that was really unconscious. So you might have said my my outer focus was on suffering less, but I think deeply what was going on was that the sense of actual choice, and I mean the very deep choice, like to identify with the person I appeared to be, or or they, they, that I could be deliberately, however unconsciously, choosing to believe in the truth of certain unexamined beliefs I had, including what was possible and what was not for me, mm-hmm. for anybody. So what I think happened was, while I was focusing on trying to suffer less and trying to be a better mother and that sort of behavioral thing, I think the the very deep structure of assumptions that I had carried, including perhaps the one that my teacher was, you know, on the approaching unique, not unique, but, you know, had something I didn't have. 
I think those things were being shaken up, but I was not aware they were being shaken up. And so I used to believe, and I expressed this in the first book I wrote, that that it was when I said, or you could say because I said to myself, to whatever, couldn't I go through this medical procedure tomorrow without being afraid? And then, it, and then I felt it just go right then. I used to think there was a causal relationship there. I now suspect, but again I can't know, that the, re- the reason I articulated that, that question or that prayer the way I did when I did was that something unconscious in me had deeply registered that there was a choice. There always had been a choice. I couldn't have lived it until right then, maybe. But there's something about saying that that wish, that earnest, heartfelt wish, that was just saying, in order to hear myself say it, the thing that I had deeply come to realize. And I think, I think that happens a lot with people. By the time we we have framed the right question for ourselves, as it were, or the right mental understanding. We, it might look like we're, at the, like we're opening a door to some new knowledge, but what I think is it's, we've already, we already know the answer. Or we, you know, I think the mind is sluggish in its articulation of the framing of a problem or a realization. Hmm. And you mean at some uh, gut level or intuitive level we have a sense of, of what that answer is? I think the answer is already there, and so then we frame the question to ourselves as a way of, yeah, as a way of giving word or concept to it. And I think how, how all of that goes on, I suspect, is just from ordinary, daily, momentary life beating us up, <laughs> shaking right. up our sense of self over and over again. And, you know, we, meanwhile, we're going through it thinking we know what we want, including spiritually, thinking we know what we need or what progress is. Or, and I think mostly we have no idea. <laughs> but meanwhile, life in its, what I perceive as kindness, is, is pushing us and pulling the rug out from under us and directing our attention in one direction or another so that that very deep learning that we're mostly not conscious of can can occur in an ongoing way. And I think that's probably what happened to me. Sometimes I look back now on my youth or on things that happened long before I met Guru Mai or thought of myself as, you know, trying to look at my inner work and all that. Um, I sometimes look back on things that happened when I was younger and I see a significance to them that I never saw before. And I realize, oh, something was going on there. Hmm. Maybe. Do you think that it, that it matters for the, the individual to try to bring those unconscious, subconscious teachings, if you will, to the surface and be, and be aware of them? For example, uh, at the end of each day, thinking back upon the things that happened during the day and, and trying to see if there were any lessons there. 
I think it's certainly good to be open and receptive to a noticing like that. But, I, and I really, I really mean that, to notice when it feels like change is happening, but maybe you can't account for it, or to, to allow yourself to linger in the feeling of that, but to specifically go looking for a thing you could frame conceptually or in words. I think chances are good that's not going to yield much, but I do think the things come to us all on their own and register consciously when we're when we're ready to process them on that level. I, I think sometimes, I, and I watch this with so many people, that they think they know what they need to be doing spiritually speaking, but meanwhile, off to the side, I can observe because they're sharing bits of their lives with me. I can observe things happening that I realize they don't even see the significance of. So sometimes, you know, in a, there's a way in which I sometimes think I can be useful to somebody and say, have you noticed that you laugh more than you used to? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, something. So I think we don't always pay attention to indication. I may be sleeping better. Or, um, so I think it's, it is very good to be attuned to oneself, you know, as often as it occurs to you to, mm-hmm. to say, oh, what, what is it feeling like to be me nowadays, you know, but not in, a, not in a critical way or not in a way that's looking for a harvest to reap. It's more like it's already happening, whatever it is, and to notice and appreciate and allow yourself to linger in the feel of something that might be different from what it was before mm-hmm. without taking the next step and saying, oh, good, I'm making progress. I wonder if this means I'm about to wake up. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, and you'll you'll probably notice in my questions there's going to be a bias towards always trying to trying to turn things into, oh, well, what could I, what could I do to amplify that? What could I do to practice that what you know what can i do what can i do what can i do always trying to yeah. uh, accelerate uh if if there is some sort of natural process going on there trying to figure out how can how can it be accelerated yeah and and for me the, the really useful thing to do if a person notices that tendency is to is to just pause and say what is it in me that's where is that tendency coming from? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that's a great question. <laughs> and and that can bear fruit. That is a very fruitful place to put the attention. But where the attention usually goes is trying to come up with an answer to the question, as if the question were legitimate. Mm-hmm. It, it seems to me that the the primary environment in which so-called real progress is actually made is in not knowing. It's in not assuming we can understand or take hold of. Or uh, it, it's a, it's in a receptivity. There, there's a recognition that something bigger is going on than whatever I think I, I understand of it. And that very the very opposite of effort, and vigilance, and all that is, it seems to me, the fertile ground. Yeah, that reminds me of uh, Richard Rose used to say, backing away from untruth. 
was a way was a way and to me that's that's kind of similar to what you're saying it's not it's not postulating it's it's seeing that all that you know that's that's my mind that's dreaming that's make-believe but not knowing necessarily what isn't just sort of turning away from what's less true and, and backing into something unimaginable yeah and a lot of it you know our reluctance to do that very thing that you described so well is we're afraid of the unknown we we want security we want safety we want to think you know, we you know we want to be with the known or the the familiar and uh, it's just not the way it goes so even to see you know it's a natural human tendency to do the other to go the other way it's our it's our pattern it's what our minds are built for so it, it's very natural for a human being to to go about it in an effort laden way and so just to if I, if that's going on, and I recognize it, oh, that's what that is. That's coming from my mind. Just to see it for what it is. Does itself bring about a softening, it, which is really different from trying not to do it. Mm-hmm. Because we do do it, and it's already happening by the time we notice it. So, it's a way of aligning awareness with the present, because the present right now at such a moment is, I am in this energy of seeking and trying and grasping and, and you know so many people when they see that they begin to judge themselves or they try to stop it and that then that takes us out of the present because then we're trying to live in the in the future moment you know two seconds from now when the thing might have stopped or when we'll stop doing it altogether and that doesn't get us anywhere mm-hmm and- you mentioned I listened to a, a couple of recorded talks of yours, and one thing that you mentioned is that intensity of attention leads to suspension of time, and, uh, and I think you you might in that talk have given some examples of like a rock climber, for example, or, or people doing really intense activities. Is that something that? You know, again, going back to, well, doing or practicing, is that something that you think has potentially some benefit of just really paying attention to whatever is going on and and trying not to let the mind drift and wander and daydream? For sure. But, you know, whether we're doing some, you know, an intense kind of activity like racing a car or just walking down yeah. the stairs. Um, but again, I don't think we, a person could get up in the morning and say, I'm going to try to pay really close attention to each moment today as I'm in it. And, you know, sometimes attention will be being paid and sometimes mm-hmm. the, the mind gets busy and we, we don't know what we're doing right now. Um, and, you know, somebody might somebody might say, and I, I don't know whether this is part of what you were just looking at, whether we might actually deliberately undertake activities that are likely to require a lot of attention or to quiet the mind. 
like gardening or, you know, it's often something dangerous, but gardening isn't dangerous or fishing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, my sense of that is it, it's a wrong reason mm-hmm. to do a thing. Mm-hmm. If, if I'm moved to go fishing because I really love to fish, say, then I should go fishing because I love to fish. But I might, I might, you know, naturally become aware while I'm standing at the water's edge with a pole in my hand watching the ripples, I might become aware that, oh, my mind is very quiet here. And part of the reason people love to do those things or to knit or they don't, not, they're not necessarily conscious of this, but part of why often we enjoy those things is because they give our minds a rest and we're really in the moment. So we are drawn to do those things. That's, I think that's why people do things like climb mountains, because they, they love the way it makes them feel. Do you think that there is a, a difference then between someone who who's knitting, let's say, but has no context for it other than I enjoy knitting and someone who let's say has read your book or listened to one of your talks and likes to knit and then begins to notice while they are knitting that oh you know notice they notice qualities of of the experience while they're knitting that they wouldn't otherwise have noticed I, I do think that could be the case the latter but but also, if that, I wouldn't ever say to somebody, if you're turning this into a reason, a method, you know, to do something, I, I would not encourage that. But it, but I think it is true that having encountered the the idea of it in a book or hearing somebody talk about it, can cause us to become more noticing and and indeed appreciative <laughs> of those moments of of. Um, Real presence that we might we might not otherwise have get recognized for what they are, and let ourselves feel the pleasure of them. Yeah, <laughs> I, I like so this a, conversation because you know, I'm always trying to turn everything into a method, and you're like, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and it's natural. Of course, people want a method. Right. You know, I mean. And it's real good to see where that comes from. If it really is true, like, you know, what if it actually is true that everybody already is this, and yet they just don't notice it? Well, (laughs) let's just supposing it's the case, then, then it's just a matter of things needing to get out of the way so that we become aware of what's already going on. The idea of a method, a process, progress, does not invite us into the discovery of what's already here. It's looking for change. And that's, you know, that's a waste. It's just not going to get us anywhere. So even those, even people who undertake earnest practice and they look for methods and all that and they do it for years and then they finally actually wake up, even they often will say, Oh my God, I see now this was always right in front of my face and I was doing all that wheel spinning Mm -hmm. and I needn't have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yet, yet, right. But we don't know what to do. If it doesn't feel like it's right in your face, then you say, (laughs) yeah, so it's it's natural. But at some point, one thing I, I gently encourage people to do is 
if they have a teacher or a book or a practice or whatever, just to hold it lightly and to realize that, yes, it may, it may do its good. It may uh, appear to move you along and open things and help you let go of one thing or another. But, but please realize that at some point you're going to feel that it's no longer needed, useful, uh, because anything that, that truly could be useful is only delivering you to whatever's mm-hmm. beyond it. So I, you know, I encourage people to trust themselves. Like somebody will say to me, do you think I should meditate? And I say, if when you sit for meditation, you love the way you feel there, if you feel like something happened and you're peaceful in your mind, you know, whatever, then of course you should do it. But the point is to trust yourself. So even if what I might call a method is, uh, you know, clearly, ultimately not going to take you home to yourself, if you feel, anybody feels a sense that it's, um, it's making something significant happen within themselves. And all that is is making the blocks soften, making the barriers, you know, lose solidity. And we, we often wouldn't be able to articulate that to ourselves. I certainly couldn't have. But, you know, if you feel something real happening in you, trust it. And don't hold on to it and don't think, oh, this is going to take me all away. Yeah. And if it stops feeling fruitful, trust that. We, we have everything inside of ourselves if, to, to the ability to register. Does this feel alive? Or is it that this thing that I'm doing puts me in my head? It makes me feel like a failure or like I'm making progress. We, we can trust the, if we're willing to look, the impression we get of whatever the phenomenon is. That we're always looking for answers outside, mm-hmm. as I did. In regards to negative emotions, if you will, or negative reactions to things of, oh, I've, you know, I'm feeling lousy today, I'm disappointed in myself, all those sorts of things. Do you, do you have any advice for people who, you know, berate themselves about their failures and so forth, um, or, or just how to handle the negative things in general? Do you, you know, do you ignore them? Do you look at them? Do you just let them happen? What, what are your thoughts on that? My, my sense is that when, when a person becomes aware of something like that happening right now, not as a pattern, not when you were a kid, but right now, um, allow the feeling of it. Uh, do not try to push it away. And if you're judging yourself for it or, or trying to change it or avoid it, see that you're doing that. The body is a wonderful... Uh, uh, vehicle for allowing. The thing's already registering in our bodies or we, it wouldn't get our attention that it feels bad, it feels yep. negative, as we say. So the, you know, the body's already saying, this is actually happening. And, and so my sense is if a person can just really relax into the physical sensation of it, not fight it, Notice any tendency to drop it into a category of positive or negative, 
or any, any tendency to try to change it, then what happens, the delicious thing that can happen, if I really just allow myself to feel whatever's happening right now, sometimes that very gesture of un, unresisting, un, um, manipulating in any way, opens us to the larger space that's, as it were, holding the whole thing. It, you know, it's the larger space is what we really are and the, the thing and a person that can actually see all of this occurring while it's occurring. And sometimes in that, in that very deep seeing, it will become apparent that this emotion at bottom was generated by a belief I have or an idea in my head. So it can be, this deep surrender can be very illuminating in that way, but it's important not to allow the negative or whatever emotion so that we can have an insight or so that we can stop experiencing that thing. We, at some point, a person stops feeling what we call negative emotions. But until (laughs) the stopping has happened, it's because there's something there for us to see. And the trick is to just allow the feeling without looking around in the weeds to see what what is it this is trying to show me because it's the mind that's doing that the mind is asking that question you mean what is this trying to show me yeah 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 but if it but if there is something to be revealed awareness itself which is not i make a distinction between awareness and the mind awareness itself will see that it's like oh oh it's, it's like a, a woman that I've been sharing with in this way for a long time uh, said to me once that she, she'd had trouble sleeping. She had real chronic insomnia. And, and one night as she was lying there awake, she, you know, just allowing herself to be awake, without going looking for it, she came upon this deep belief on which the insomnia had always been depending, which said, I should be able to sleep at night. And when she saw that, the next thing she knew, it was hmm. morning. <laughs> she had fallen asleep. Uh, and But that came all on its own. And mm-hmm. she's an earnest seeker. She had, you know, there's no stone she would have left unturned if she consciously mm-hmm. could have gotten there. But I, I think the beginning of being able, of real surrender to something difficult that's being felt in the body, the beginning of it is to notice that we're probably already resisting it, or notice the unpleasantness of the sensation, or or notice how it's the feeling is so tied up in thought somehow. And as soon as we become self-aware, then softening begins to happen, as long as we're not trying to change or stop anything seems like the natural tendency is to uh, do one of two things in, in my experience if if for example uh, there's a perceived slight against me someone says something and I don't like what they say I either will feel bad about it it hurts me or I will immediately attack the other person one of those two things and and both of them are yeah. wrong. 
both of those reactions are different, I think, than what you're describing of just actually sitting and feeling that hurt as opposed to thinking about the hurt or defending the yeah. hurt. And sometimes the, the deep seeing and deep allowing occurs only afterward. And here the mind is a blessing because it's the mind helps us, in effect, replay an episode of, of outer reactivity which began with the inner reactivity that said, I don't like that, or, you know, but, uh, but often the, the emotion mm-hmm. is lingering still when we do that retrospect with the mind. And, and so it's, it becomes possible if you, if you look to see, let's say you didn't react, but you just felt wounded. You didn't have the opportunity to lash out or something. Or something in you managed to monitor that. And if you, and I, I have been someone historically who was very subject to having her feelings hurt and uh, didn't like being mm-hmm. not thought well of and all that. And so, if I if I looked deep, you know, deep inside, let it, you know, let myself feel the bite that I had experienced or was experiencing right then, if I look to see, oh, what, what is it, where, you know, is there something, something else besides the pain itself, it would have been, uh, instead of people yeah. shouldn't act that way, <laughs> which, which was my classic thing, yeah. or I'm a total loser, it, it would be a deep seeing that my sense of, well-being in myself depends very heavily on what somebody thinks of me. That that's where I get my sense of worth. And um, so then the attention goes from the, the other person who was an idiot or cruel or whatever I've been telling myself into my own sense of what, what makes a life, what makes my life, what makes me legitimate, okay, all that and that's painful those very you know the whole reason we have those mental structures is to protect ourselves from a very deep mm-hmm. pain and we don't want to go there but to go there is a profound softening and uh, inviting of illumination mm-hmm. richard rose used to advocate that it would be helpful if you looked back upon some past experiences in fact he i think he called that one of the first stages of meditation or types of meditation was to go back and look at um some very confrontational experiences that you had had or emotional experiences and sort of replay those and see see what was at the heart of them i think when we do that and we begin to see how it really was about me yeah wasn't about the other person. Yeah, and definitely. the ego doesn't like that at all. <laughs> There's a huge yeah, but comes up on that one. But the, the more we begin to see that when somebody else has lashed out, we 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 we're seeing not only into ourselves and our own reaction, and the wound that underlies our reaction, but we're seeing into the other person, and so we're realizing. And again, this is not mental; it's a deep heartfelt, body felt thing that everybody's wounded. And when somebody somebody lashes out or is defensive or whatever they're doing, 
what's behind that in them is terrible pain. And that's what I, that's how I experience people. I don't even notice their, really, that they're lashing out. I, I feel, mm. oh my God, this person is hurting, hurting, hurting. But it's like, you know, we recognize it in ourselves and it causes the apparent distance between myself and other to soften. We really are all the same. We're not in a battle, or we don't mm-hmm. have to be. And it's not about forgiving the other person. It's not about understanding how they got to be the way they are. Although, on the level of the mind, that can be useful. Eckhart Tolle once said something about, you know, when you when you find yourself being put off by somebody's behavior, if you can just gently realize, well, if that if I had the same conditioning that that person has, and I may not even know what their conditioning is, but I would be behaving the same way, doubtless. And, you know, there is something to that. It's not about letting ourselves or anybody else off the hook. It's just seeing how a human being, because of the way our society is set up and child-rearing and all that, is terribly subject to environment and forces and well-meaning mm-hmm. and cruelty. Uh, there's a quote I wanted to ask you about that's along this line. And you said, uh, there's a difference between indulging the thought and allowing yourself to feel what you're actually feeling. The key to this is to be in the body and my question about that is I'm, I'm thinking about about myself in my 20s for example i i would have had no idea of what you're talking about being the body and i'm just curious if you can you know if, if if you run into people like that who just don't know what you're talking about if you have any advice for how can one get more in tune with being in the body that sort of thing yeah. Oh, I surely do encounter people who they either have no idea what I'm talking about or they do know what I'm talking about, but only because they can feel themselves unable yeah. to be in the body. Uh, no, we, I'm just, I'm, oh, sorry, I'm just agreeing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some, uh, I could go a few different directions with this, but I'll just say briefly that for somebody who's experienced trauma, uh, it's entirely possible that the the body and the mind for such a person do not function in a in a truly automatic kind of way uh, in a way that consciousness has access to and so when sometimes somebody will say i really can't help it and they they literally can't um if, and I am not going to carry on about trauma, but I'm just going to say that I, I've learned enough about it. I'm certainly not an expert, but I've learned enough about it to get that for such a person, uh, there is a probably a necessary kind of healing or treatment or exploration on the psychological level that can happen, that can uh, undo that pattern or soften it. Uh, 
Um, but if that's not what's going on for somebody, and I, and I don't think it usually is, uh, who uh, has no idea about the body, they can't attune to it, I, I would encourage such a person to, uh, to be patient, first of all, uh, to allow themselves to grow still, when in a moment when they're having a very painful emotion and to just stop what i mean is not not try to stay busy but to literally sit still or lie down and uh feel just see if they can locate what where the emotion in their body is occurring if it's in their heart are they sweaty do they have any physical expressions of it um sometimes i uh sometimes i i might say can you see with the with the emotion can you see that there's mental activity that accompanies it so sometimes i'll encourage them to go into their heads to explore uh as a way to help them get to uh, the very deep pain that underlies the unpleasant emotion that has probably nothing to do with the emotion. So if they're able, you know, even say, you know, am I telling myself a story? Like sometimes I'll encourage people, write down what you're telling yourself. The thing that, the loop that's going on endlessly in your mind. And sometimes when they do that, or even just look to see what they're thinking, it will, uh, I've already put it in their heads, see if there's something you believe in there that you might notice. So this is a very mental thing. Do you know? Do you? Is there something here that says people shouldn't be this way, or I can't? There's a there's a thing that I just can't do in my life that other people can. Or, um, and then when they look to see, you know, if they do come up, and this is a very slow process. It's something I would be supporting them through if I if I'm there. Um, to see, is this thought perhaps protecting you from a, from a very deep pain of loss or wound that you just don't want to feel? And then sometimes that, then the crying starts, or that will help them become aware of their bodies. I ask, I ask these people sometimes, do you ever cry? If they're not used to being physical, if, they don't, if they're not athletes or doing... A physical labor of some kind, I will encourage them to do something, dance, do take on a physical uh, hobby or discipline or something that will help them become attuned to their physicality on that level. That's not specifically to do with an emotion. It just, they may notice, oh, when I'm jogging, I feel really good or I'm pushing myself, it feels bad or... Hmm. You know, so mm-hmm. sometimes encouraging a person to be more physical will gently, over time, help them be more attuned to the registering of an emotion mm-hmm. in the body. But my, I think the main thing is encouraging them to notice how much they're in their heads. without trying to change it, just see it. Yeah. That they take refuge in their minds. Sometimes it's just when you eat a meal, 
notice when, when the food tastes really good, notice the sensation of fullness mm -hmm. in your belly. Things that a lot of people don't, they're not conscious of. So that sometimes that's a doorway to mm -hmm. becoming more aware of a physicality. I, I was curious if you, I've heard you mention um, the words attention, consciousness, and awareness uh, almost interchangeably, and I was curious if, if, you, if that's true or if you differentiate between those three terms. I think I, I use them more or less interchangeably, and I know different people use one of those words a different way. One thing I'd say about it is consciousness, what I, what I think of as consciousness, um, well, can be, it can be aware of just itself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm using aware there. Hard to, hard to use language, but I think attention, um, it's useful to notice what goes on in terms of a person's attention alongside thinking, which is different. The, but the way that we, that we tend to learn about that and notice it is by seeing that we're attending something. Our, our attention is on something in the outer world, or sometimes on the interior, but more obvious way is having to do with the immediate environment, something sensory or in motion. So we can notice attention to something out there. So it feels like attention mm -hmm. has an object. As I experience and sometimes use the word consciousness, I, it could be used interchangeably, but it can also feel itself. It, you know, it's, it's like uh, a container sensing itself it doesn't ha there doesn't have to be something in it or that it's something that it's on for one thing in that way that i'm using consciousness there's a diffuse quality that's let's say softly attuned to anything in the in the field of consciousness it's not focused the way attention often is so sometimes if i'm um, in a deep conversation with someone and i'm directing my attention to the look on their face, the, the words they're saying, the words I'm saying. I will lose all track of the hunger in yeah. my belly or the pain in my foot. Consciousness, what I think of as consciousness, is softer and it's not directed in a, a certain direction necessarily. It's, it's more a, a soft kind of attunement or alertness. And I, but I'm, I'm making a distinction here, only that I think can be useful to somebody when they're trying to notice what is, what does attention feel like? It's easier when there's, when it's on something. Does the idea of, uh, you mentioned being a, aware of consciousness, I think that's, I think that's how you phrased it. Um, it, it, does your, does your mind or does your experience or did you have the experience of being uh, what am I searching for here there's a there's a paradox there of how can how can consciousness be aware of itself how can how can a thing know of itself uh, and and the, I bring this up because 
in meditation for years, I was hung up on, uh, okay, I'm, there's this awareness, but now I'm aware of this awareness. And it seemed like there were two awarenesses inside of me, and they were always uh, flipping back and forth from one to the other, and I could never feel like I am that awareness, because it was always this shifting thing. Does that ring any bells with you? Can you say a little bit more about what the first one, what, uh, what you described as the initial consciousness? It, yeah. Okay. Okay. What, what um, well, let's say of? in uh, in a typical meditation practice, like a vipassana practice, where you're being aware of your breathing, let's say, or you're noting things. A thought comes up, and you you literally note it. Of okay, um, anger happiness these different things come up and you note them and move on at some point that quiets down and there's just an there's just like a space in which things appear and i would call that awareness but then there'll be a moment of resting in that awareness and then suddenly there's the sense of being aware of resting in that awareness. And that always befuddled me is how could yeah. I, if what we are is awareness, for example, and it's a concept, uh, but it, in, in experiencing that, it, it always seemed like there would inevitably be some other awareness of that, some other observer of this process. My sense of what goes on is that when so in the in the first thing that you described if, if you're sitting and you notice a thought or breathing sound in the room uh, as soon as you no let's just say interior things not sound in the room but as soon as you notice as soon as awareness or consciousness notices something that's going on in the mind, then it it stops, you know, and and so usually, and so then absent anything to focus on or to give attention to, the awareness then has the the leisure, the luxury to notice itself. That's my sense of what happens. And, and so, it, but really, it, it could say, if we are spaciousness, it, the, the, thing, the thing that's going on the whole time is that even when you notice that there's a negative thought, the mm -hmm. thing that's doing the noticing is yeah. not experiencing the negativity. Right? It's seeing it. And so there's evidence there. There's, you know, if you have eyes to see it, there's evidence. The, the important thing that's going on there is not the, it's not the seeing of the negativity. It's certainly not the negativity. It's the fact that there's something in yeah. my conscious awareness that can see that isn't subject to the thing it's seeing. And as, as soon as that happens, the the predominant reality or the restfulness of that seer 
uh, you could say, just wants to be with itself. But as soon as, if, if a person, you know, if the mind turns on at all, then, you know, that we, we retreat from that. The premise of all of it is, what, what is it in me that's doing this? And I think what happens when, when consciousness is just sensing itself is that the sense of any self has disappeared fleetingly, usually. Um, and in fact, I think people sometimes have moments like that that they don't retain, right. they don't remember later happened because their minds were so not in the picture then. But I also think it's possible, and I've seen this happen, to, to be, <laughs> for the awareness to be aware of itself without that being a trigger for the mind to get busy. Mm-hmm. And that can be retained later. By the mind can remember. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that happens, but I've seen it many times. So it's like something we were talking about a while ago. To me, the useful thing to do when, say, sitting in meditation or whatever, when awareness notices negativity, the useful thing to to do there, to be aware of, is what is ask the question: What is it that's aware of the negative t- negativity? Not where does the negativity come from, or what can I do about it? But what actual function in me is able to see? Where is it located? Some people have a sense of it actually being outside or bigger than or something. Have you read Sam Harris's book where he talks about consciousness? The doing nothing? Is that it? Um, or something the, along that uh, line? Oh, no, no. Uh, yeah, you're talking about the guy who likes to debate. Yeah, um, yeah. that's what he's known Sam for. Harris, PhD. This one is, this one is yeah. called Waking Up uh, Spirituality Without Religion or something like that. He really looks in a, in a rigorously scientific way to the extent that's possible. He really looks at the nature of consciousness and asks that very question that you asked, how can consciousness, how is it that consciousness can recognize itself? And his exploration of that, and he's also a meditator, which nobody ever would have known until he came out in this book, given his reputation mm-hmm. for being an atheist and the, you know, all, that, all the rest of it. Um, he basically says, we cannot, we, so, at, so far at this point in the scientific exploration of how the mind functions, we cannot answer that question, how consciousness can recognize itself. But he makes very compelling, ordinary, day-to-day, you could say non-spiritual uh, observations about how a person can notice in him or herself what's actually already going on there that's part of our own innate equipment. And I, I found that book, I don't read anymore, I'm not interested in reading, but that one hooked me. Yeah, I'll, I'll make sure to link to that in the notes oh, from the show so people yeah, can look wonderful. that book up. And I'm not making anything on Sam Harris's book sales. I've, <laughs> I've mentioned this book <laughs> enough times at retreats and stuff that I sometimes think people may think, is she like friends with him or 
trying to help him. He doesn't need any help <laughs> from anybody selling books. But anyway, if that sort of thing speaks to a person, it, it's, I think, very compelling. So I don't know. It's a marvel to me. I feel very fortunate to be a human being that it, it can experience consciousness sensing itself. It's delicious. Do you find that that people wind up want, wanting to chase a state of where they feel like they are more aware more of the time and that that itself becomes another goal? I'm trying to see what uh, what are some of the the blocks, if you will, or or side routes that people in your experience yeah. uh, go down. It certainly is something that sometimes people can do. But what what I what I notice happening is even if that happens for a while, if they become sort of addicted to that feeling of it, let's say, because it rescues them from the pain of life or something. Exactly. Uh, even yeah. if that, uh, you could say, is a motivator for a while, the what happens, and I, this is so lovely and humbling to witness. The more a person actually experiences being in the present, and and actually experiences that the present, however unpleasant it may be, it really is all that's real. The the more they tend to fall out of love with accumulating experience or making a certain kind of experience more predominant or achieving something or waking up. And I think it's because time and anything that could happen in time has ceased to feel uh, tangible to them. So, (laughs) ironically... Some of the people who have been the most devoted, earnest seekers stop being seekers, not because they necessarily woke up, but because they're, they forget to pay attention to much of anything else besides what's happening right now. And they've little by little learned that it hurts to resist. And so they've, they've come to rest in what's happening instead of trying to change it, including trying to change themselves and their own experience. So sometimes they'll, they'll lament to me, they'll say, you know, I just, I'm, I've lost interest in waking up and I just laugh. What more wonderful thing could happen? Mm-hmm. So even if somebody's trying really hard to have that experience more often, uh, you know, it's probably not going to continue. Anyway, we can't make we can't make those moments happen. We we can't make ourselves not be reactive, for instance. All we can do is see when we are reactive. We can see that we are in resistance. We are in our heads. We have been, you know, the last however long and as soon as you see that it often softens. And yes it feels good. And I encourage people to pay attention to how it feels. Yes, it feels lovely. And don't let the next thing be, how can I make this happen more? Uh, yeah, I think that's the, that's at least a tendency that I see with teachings that point out, let's say, that well, 
hey, there's this awareness and it's here and it's always here and people get a sense of that, say during a lecture or from reading a book and then the immediate reaction is, oh, I felt it and now I don't feel it and now I want it again. Yeah. And so I'm going to go back to a lecture, go to more lectures oh, and sit in more satsangs. Yeah. And so I can feel it more and more and more until I feel it all the time or almost all the time. Yeah, doesn't work. If instead such a person could make note of the wish to make it happen more and explore what is it in me that wants that, it's the same machinery that suffers. Hmm. And it doesn't want to suffer. It wants to feel good. But we, we don't put our attention the right place you know the tendency is to follow that desire and think how can i get it i should go back to that teacher or whatever absolutely and instead if if i if i were such a person and had that thought that driving desire if i could just pause for a second and say what am i really which is what this whole thing is about what am i really what is it in me that wants that until something leads us to look at that we're, we're just going to stay on the same loop. And we might have peaceful moments of great insight, but we didn't cause them when they happened. We just didn't. Or if we did, it was mm -hmm. in spite of our... It, <laughs> maybe we can look back and say, it was something I did that brought that about. It was that I... You know, that's what terrible suffering sometimes brings about in people. You can look back and say, wow, if my house hadn't burned down my whole sense of myself might not have changed. We can see it in retrospect, but... And, that, you know, there are a lot of obviously famous waking up stories that were apparently precipitated by some devastation. Along that line, perhaps, there are a number of teachers who talk about the importance of, of earnestness and... You know, devoting attention, applying energy, and and uh, determination, and these sorts of very uh, perhaps masculine qualities of you know really going after something. Do you do you see a a place for that? Do you or do you feel like that those qualities tend to get in the way of what's there? Oh, I think it depends on how that thing expresses itself in a person's experience and sense of themselves. If it feels like being a taskmaster, uh, that's one thing. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not something we can cause in ourselves to be devoted or to be yeah. earnest. It's something we either, we either naturally, we, we can't help but <laughs> move towards something. Right. Uh, but to to encourage somebody to cultivate that kind of quality or trait, if it isn't naturally there, it probably isn't going to get them anywhere. But it, is, it can be fruitful to see if there's resistance and avoidance. It looks to me like in order for us to, you could say, benefit from life experience as it bangs into us all the time, our willingness, and Richard Rose talked about this, our willingness to, as it were, sacrifice or suffer anything without condition, if, if there is such a willingness, the, the chances are greater that 
our life experience will bear fruit. Mm -hmm. um, if there isn't a willingness, if we have conditions, and I remember very clearly having some of my own conditions, uh, then that, that will surely interfere with the ability of life to teach us. So to me, the useful thing is to look and see, is, do I have a devotion? Do I have an energy, a willingness to sacrifice everything? Or do I have a list of things that I'm not willing to sacrifice? Uh, to observe that these things are functioning can bear fruit, but to say, I'm going to get rid of the list, you know, that's not how it happens. But as soon as we become aware that there are conditions or tendencies we have that keep us from absolutely surrendering to life, then that, that can be fruitful. But that's really different from saying, I'm going to be vigilant, you know, I'm going to try really, really hard to not have negative thoughts or, you know, oh, it's so exhausting, I feel so bad for people that do that and don't get anywhere and they're tired from it and so discouraged. It's just because it mm -hmm. doesn't work, it's the mind. So some people are naturally given to the to what you were describing. Certainly, to use an example from everyday life, if you have a, a desire to start your own business, for example, and that's been there a long time, there can be a lot of fears that will prevent you from doing that, even though that desire is there. You're not letting it come to the surface. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful analogy, really, because when I said we can trust ourselves very deeply. It seems to me that a person can be aware, let's say, that the desire to start a business is there, be aware that fear has been stopping me, and then a frustration or a feeling of lack of fulfillment. If, if somebody's willing to see I'm afraid and to deeply go into the feeling of that longing to start a business and realize that un until I respond to that, the business isn't going to happen and I'm just going to be frustrated. And maybe the business won't happen anyway. But So, it, you know, to deeply trust the thing that's seen as a, a longing is uh, its a recipe for feeling more alive, whether or not it's a recipe for a successful business. But the thing is either there or it's not, you know, right? You can't yeah. make somebody, this, you know. Can't, you could talk somebody into thinking they ought to really want to start a business, but it's false. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. It seems to me that the deeper we can see into ourselves, into what's fundamentally motivating us, the underlying desire or fear or whatever it is, that's, that's when light begins to come on. But as long as we're operating even behaviorally in terms of, you know, what do I do for a living or who do I spend time with? Or, so if we're operating at any kind of a distance from that deep, deep motivation, nothing really important is going to happen spiritually or otherwise. We're just going to keep being, feeling like we're not really living. And do you think that when a, if a person were to come to you and say, uh, you know, I'm feeling stuck, I just don't know what to do next, do you think that people are ever really just don't know what to do or there's something else going on there? It usually doesn't take very much for me to see why they're stuck. And it, mm -hmm. it can be different for different people. First of all, I think it's good to see that you're stuck. That's useful. Um, 
often it reveal if you turn and look at it, the stuckness, you'll 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 be able to see there are beliefs under there underlying that said, you know, this kind of thing should bear fruit and it's not. Or you may find that there there are places you just don't want to go. There are feelings you just don't want to feel. So stuckness is useful because it, it points to something if you have eyes to see. Hmm. So if only if it only leads a person to say to saying, I'm just going to give up on the things I've been trying because they're not working. Well, that's really useful. Hmm. Sometimes it's just out of frustration, <laughs> but mm-hmm. it's a it can be a door opening. Something else, there's something else needs to happen. And so, but I'm not going to give them another method for sure. I'm going to help them look within and see what what does the stuckness reveal about a place in themselves they haven't wanted to go, most likely, or refuge that they've been taking in a in a set of beliefs that's just mental garbage. Mm-hmm. Lots of people start off their conversations with me, with, "I feel stuck. I've been doing this for a long, long time." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's it's great. It's a great day. To recognize one's stuckness. Something is tired of being stuck and willing to take a risk or question something that's not been questioned. A couple of of short questions for you. You mentioned uh, Sam Harris's book, Waking Up. Are there any other books that you tend to recommend to people? It's hard for me to... That one came to me because it it was more recently in my awareness, but yeah. not later on. Something might come to me, and I'll email you. But sure, not not right now. Okay. Yeah. And and how about uh, one of the things I love is film. Are there any films that you feel like uh, capture some of the sense of of the spiritual search or spiritual awakening? Wow. I love movies too. It's an interesting thing. Uh, I, what comes to me without without an actual title coming to me mm-hmm. is that, uh, and I I think these would often be foreign made. I must say, not necessarily, but watching a movie that a person feels very still while watching. It's not explicitly about things spiritual. Mm. But maybe there's a lot of the natural world in it. It's moving very slowly. Um, Any kind of meaning is very much between the lines. It's not heavily caught up in a human dynamic. Um, I mean, I don't know what, you know, what movie am I talking about, but let's just say I know I've had that experience sometimes watching movies. Yeah, there's a there's a Japanese film, I believe, that was it was something like summer, fall, winter, spring, oh, something yes. like that, and it's just it's set in a monastery, I think, and it's very quiet, a lot of scenes of the natural world, but but there's a story there as well. Yeah, I think I remember seeing that, and uh, I can't. I can't say, I don't remember well enough to say if it did yeah. that, had that kind of effect for me, but I think that that is the kind of thing I'm 
I'm thinking of. Mm-hmm. You know, even though I still love to watch movies, when I watch them, my mind, I don't follow a plot line. I don't pay a whole lot of attention to the specific things being said in dialogue. Mm-hmm. So, I, what, which is a way of saying, I think most movies really do engage us on the mental level. Oh yeah, and I don't, I don't want to do that. So, in in terms of your relationship with people these days, is that something that's? Uh, I'm assuming that's something that's radically changed uh, since this experience of fear falling away. Oh yeah, I. Uh... Uh, some some relationships that I had went away, mm-hmm. um, just kind of naturally. Um, some the ones that endured surely changed, but this was many years ago by now. And and what I what I find now is that um, I really enjoy being around people, observing and feeling them and so on. But I I don't. I don't feel the need, really, for um, relationships per se. Although there are some I do have that I enjoy very much, but only uh, probably actually spending time with such a person only very occasionally. Um, there's something about being being with another person in a in a way where there's actual engagement going on that requires us to be people, (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know, each of us to be a person in some way. And I really love what happens when that's not being asked. Mm. Um, That's how I account for it after the fact, my great preference for solitude. Mm -hmm. Uh, But... My children, for instance, I have a wonderful relationship with each of my children, and I'm only glad of the time I spend with each of them. So mm-hmm. it's not like I'm incapable of relating in the good old-fashioned way. Mm-hmm. But surely the relationship with each of them has changed because of what happened to their mother. Now I noticed in the uh, the bat gap interview that you did uh that you have a cat i saw a cat sneaking around in the background uh, we have two cats oh. do you feel like uh, do you have any sense of the awareness or consciousness of cat and what that is like <laughs> uh, uh i'm sitting here near one of my cats right now <laughs> uh i love the company of animals in general and uh my sense of i I remember eckhart saying he he's had a couple of great meditation masters who were cats yeah Uh, my sense of animals is that they that the pleasure that i experience and i think many of us experience in their presence comes with the fact that they're they're just alive they're absolutely in the immediacy uh, they process only to the extent that processing is necessary to stay out of danger and rest and get themselves fed. And I think when we're in the presence of that, that in us that's like that too uh, recognizes itself, you could say. So I think part of what we appreciate about their company is we get to 
feel ourselves with them. And I don't think most of us are conscious of that. And I can't even say that I know that's true. Mm -hmm. But I have, you know, do I have any idea what it's like inside my cat's consciousness? Oh, how I wish I did. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, it amuses me to think I do, you know, we have conversations and so on. But mm -hmm. I know fundamentally I'm, I'm a human being and he's a cat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was just curious. I'm fascinated by by them myself, and oh, just sort of yeah. you know sitting quietly next to them. Is, yeah, it's an interesting experience. Yeah. Uh, if if we're about out of time, if people want to find out more about you or get in touch with you, how would they go about doing that? Well, I have a a website, which is janfraserteachings.com. I think it's dot com, <laughs> um, and there are, there are places on the website that would lead to books and events if there are events. There right now I'm not planning events, but um, and if if someone wants to get in touch to have a private session, that that's, it says there how to do that. And I you know if they're just interested in books, certainly they're on Amazon and whatever the other places might be. Great. And you have, uh, how many books do you have now? It's four, five books now? Let's see. Two books came out in uh, hard form, solid form. There, are, there also is e-books. And then two, uh, two others are just in e-book form. I think it's two. <laughs> yeah. Got it. Yeah. I'll make sure I, that I link to all those in the uh, show Thank notes you. as well. Well, I... I don't have any more questions. Is there is there anything that you want to wrap up with? I almost said no, but something quick does come to me, which is to say that if a person senses that there's more to themselves than their minds and their suffering, I really encourage them to trust that deep knowing and and just to just to sit with that knowing without necessarily saying, well, now what do I do about it? But it's, it's, they're, they're tuning into something real and actual and precious. So precious. Thank you. Thank you, Jan. Thank you, Sean. It's been delightful. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate it.